Commonly hailed as one of the best films across the sound and silent era alike, Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc was undoubtedly groundbreaking when it was released in 1928, and it remains so today. With very eccentric cinematography and editing, along with a breathtaking performance from the one-time movie star Maria Falconetti, there is really nothing quite like it. Interestingly, though, the original prints for this film were long thought to have been lost in a fire until 1981. An exceptionally well-preserved copy was discovered in a Norwegian insane asylum. That was from Ben McDonald, senior critic from the Cinecentric website. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Hello there. My name is Jeff Kelly, and welcome to the 14th episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. Today is the second Monday of the month, and that means I'm going to talk about one of my favorite films. This episode will be about the 1928 French silent historical film, The Passion of Joan of Arc, one of the most intriguing films ever made. Everything from the story to the way it was made to the history of the film is a tale in itself, but I would say the most interesting aspect is the star Falconetti, who plays Joan. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this might be one of the most astonishing performances ever committed to film. You know, there are not too many films that fall into their own category. Films that just, well, can't be compared to anything else. And I can't think of any other film that compares to the experience of watching The Passion of Joan of Arc. It was directed and co-written by Carl Theodore Dreyer. Dreyer was born on the 3rd of February, 1889, in Copenhagen, Denmark. As a filmmaker, he went by the name Carl T.H. Dreyer. Now, he was born out of wedlock and spent his first few years in orphanages until he was adopted by a man named Carl Theodore Dreyer, who he took his name after. I don't know if he had a name before that. I'm not sure. But he was an intelligent child, but his early life was very unhappy. Apparently, his parents never let him forget that he was an illegitimate child, which back then was like the ultimate put-down, the ultimate curse on your, your soul. I don't know. And I'm assuming this is why he left home at the age of 16. Now, many of his films deal with women's suffering, and I would be interested to know how much of his childhood had to do with that. His first film, The President, is about a judge in a Danish town who sees his illegitimate daughter facing a trial for murder of her newborn child. Master of the House is about a mistreated housewife and a child. And, of course, this one, a young lady who was totally mistreated by the church. Dreyer was heavily influenced by D.W. Griffith. You know, there was a time when indoor scenes of a film were shot more like a stage play. The camera was placed in front of the set as if it was an audience member and the actors just acted and there were no close-ups or there was no editing whatsoever and Griffith helped change that and his techniques influenced people like Hitchcock, Lev Kuleshov, Jean Renoir, Cecil B. DeMille, Sergei Eisenstein and of course Dreyer. 
you know, the fact that Griffith made Birth of a Nation really pisses me off, but that's the story for another day. Now, after Dreyer made the very successful Master of the House, he was invited to the Societe Generale in France to make a film with a very good budget, and I uh, hope I pronounced that right. Anyway, they gave him the choice of three stories, Mary Antoinette, Catherine de' Medici, or Joan of Arc. Now, Dreyer claimed that his final decision on the film's subject was determined by drawing matches. But also, Joan had just been canonized as a saint by the Roman Catholic Church just a few years before, so that may have had something to do with it. He was given a script, but threw it out, preferring to make his own. Now, Dreyer didn't take this task lightly. He spent a year and a half researching her and based the script on the actual transcripts of her trial, condensing the 29 interrogations that took place over 18 months. Now, most people say this film takes place all in one day, but I don't know because there's a weird sense of time here. I mean, how much time passes between her initial interrogation and, and what happens to her later? I personally wasn't sure. But what he came up with was the story of her last days, her trial, and, and this is a spoiler, her ultimate execution by being burned at the stake. It doesn't deal too much with her alleged crimes, but more with her faith and her examination before the judges, how she was tormented by the guards, and the deception and corruption that was used to get a confession and, of course, her ultimate death. He had huge, expensive sets built, all in one piece with removable walls for the camera. It had towers at four corners with linked concrete walls so thick it could support the actors and equipment. Inside the enclosure were chapels, houses, and the court. And nothing seems to line up with one another. I mean, the doors and windows are all odd, and it creates this weird disorienting effect. Like I said, it was very expensive and, in a way, a waste of money because you see very little of it in the film. Joan was played by the amazing Renee Jean Falconetti, who was often referred to just as Falconetti. She was a very successful French theater actor before taking on this role. It was her second film and I believe the last she ever made. She was 33 years old when she played the 19-year-old girl. Now, legend goes that Dreyer got this amazing performance from Falconetti by being cruel to her and doing things like making her kneel on the concrete floor and such. And he brought her to the brink of emotional collapse. Jean and Dale Drum, who wrote a biography of Dreyer, said these stories are based on rumor and that there is no evidence that Dreyer could be called a sadist. Whether this is true or not, it's a wonderfully heartbreaking performance, most famously when she gets her head shaved. Dreyer was famous for doing multiple takes, and he would say later that they would spend a day doing a scene over and over and still not get it right. He and Falcone would then go through all the footage just to find that one moment in all that film that they were looking for, maybe just a second or two. If they didn't get it, he would explain it to the actor and they would film it again just to get it right. The look of the film is unusual, not just for its time, but even today, it looks strange. There are no establishing shots. Most of the film is shot in close-ups, which creates an intimacy between Joan and her tormentors. Dreyer stated, 
There were questions. There were answers. Very short, very crisp. Each question, each answer, quite naturally called for a close-up. In addition, the result of the close-up was that the spectator was as shocked as Joan was receiving the questions, tortured by them. Often Joan's interrogators are shot in harsh, high-contrast lighting, while Joan is shown with a softer, more even light, and none of the actors wore makeup, letting every blemish and wart show. American film theorist and film historian David Bordwell pointed out that one of the film's more remarkable features is its disorienting sense of space as constructed through shot composition, editing, and camera movement. Without necessarily sharing Joan's point of view, we get the feeling for the emotional stress under which she was placed. Now, in a strange twist, before it premiered in Paris, the Archbishop of Paris and government censors made several cuts, editing out scenes that they found offensive even though it was written using historical records. There is some weird irony in there, don't you think? And as you could imagine, Dreyer wasn't too happy. But the film was ultimately a box office failure. Some of the reasons might be that, well, it is an unusual film, and a lot of people were upset that Dreyer was neither Catholic nor French, so what right did he have to make this movie? It was also released at a time where talkies were already being produced. And as soon as there was sound in films, no one really wanted to see silent films anymore. But the story of the film doesn't end there. The original cut of the film, the negative, was destroyed in a fire a year after it was released. Now, like I said, Dreyer shot a lot of takes, so he put together a new version using unused takes. But strangely, that also was destroyed by fire. Oh! So for many years, this film was considered lost, except for a few crappy versions that were available. Then, in 1951, Joseph Marie Leducia, an Italian-born journalist, novelist, art critic, and film historian, found a copy of the negative of the second version, the one that was made from unused takes. But Leducia edited the film himself. Why, I don't know. But he made his own film, and Dreyer, who was alive at the time, really objected to his version. But for many years, the Leducia version was the only one available. For almost 50 years, no one was able to see this remarkable film in its original form. And then, something amazing happened. In 1981, an employee at a psychiatric hospital in Norway found, in a janitor's closet, several film canisters labeled The Passion of Joan of Arc. They were given to the Norwegian Film Institute, where they sat around for three years before someone decided to have a look. Not only were these Dreyer's original version, but they were the version before the government and church's censorship. To this day, no one is quite sure how the films got there or why they sat in a closet not being discovered for 50 years, but we're sure glad they were found. But now I'm going to take a break and we can listen to what Nancy Fry has to say about the passion of Joan of Arc. Hello, folks. First, although I found this week's film a bit overlong, considering its extremely arty reliance on Dutch angles and close-ups, I'm glad we watched it. It's beautifully composed. Every scene is a painting. 
The camera operator knew what he was doing, too. The tonal range of every frame would make Ansel Adams proud. The wide shots are very theatrical and stagey, but that's par for the course in early film. Moving pictures were still in the experimental phase. There was a lot of trying to make stage blocking work for the camera. This film only covers Joan's trial and execution, cramming the actual 28 days of the historical event into one long day, it seems. It presupposes that the viewer has an understanding of the historical context because there isn't any at all in the film, other than some brief comments in the beginning about the comprehensive historical records. With that in mind, it might be a good time to consult our resident historian. So without further ado, it's time for another Film Chat with the Fries. So historical context, first of all, uh, this is set in the Middle Ages, sometime in the 1400s. What was going on at the time? This is the ending part of the Hundred Years' War, uh, which actually took something like 120 years. But eh, anyway, it goes down in history as the Hundred Years' War between England and France. And what it basically boiled down to was the kings of England, the Plantagenets still, um, were doing their utmost to enforce their claim on the French throne, which went back quite a ways to to Eleanor of Aquitaine and all that sort of thing. Um, so if you ever watched the movie, what was that movie with Eleanor of Aquitaine? And, the Lion in Winter? Lion in Winter, yes. And so <clears throat> to give you a little more historical background on this, this Hundred Years' War between England and France, uh, go watch Henry V, the Shakespeare play of Henry V. And this is basically the result of that. Henry V had done a great job of conquering most of France. Uh, but unfortunately, he died in the process. Uh, he had married the king's daughter, Catherine, and they'd produced a son, but the child was an infant when Henry died. And he was supposed to be the king of both England and France. And England had effectively conquered France, except for Henry's death. He left the charge of France after his death in the hands of his brother, Earl of Bedford, who did a pretty good job. He was a pretty able administrator, actually far better than the French had been. Uh, and all his administrators under him were French. Okay, so the upper classes were perfectly happy with this whole thing. Now, you also have the unfortunate Civil War aspect to this of the fact that the Dukes of Burgundy were in revolt against their suzerain king of France. And Burgundy at this point was pretty much this middle kingdom between Germany or the Empire, the Holy Roman Empire and France, ranging from the Swiss border to the North Sea. And all of the Netherlands, what's today Belgium and Holland and Netherlands, were part of this Burgundian, uh, well, duchy. Uh, and there's also this problem with the dynasty of France because the king of France was had bouts of insanity. His son, the, you pronounce it right, the Dauphin, Dauphin um, was declared by his mother to be a bastard because she said that his father was actually somebody other than the king. Oh, great. Great, yeah. So there's all this legitimacy issue. And then on top of that, when John the Fearless, 
who was the Duke of Burgundy, had tried to make amends with France, with the crown of France. Uh, one of the idiot friends of the Dauphin had decided to murder him um, on the bridge when they were having this meeting. And anyway, things went very poorly with, after that. And the Burgundians said, oh, okay, you want to play that game? We're going back to war. And we're going back to, to being in alliance with the English. Okay. So how does this gal who, when everything shakes down, how does she end up in the hands of the English slash Burgundians? Okay, first off, there's no getting around the fact that it was her visions and her her steadfast belief in that she was getting visions from God. Mm -hmm. Um, And she had the ability to prove this, in fact, in that... um, According to the church fathers, she was absolutely correct in her doctrine. She could not have been satanic because her doctrine was absolutely correct. And <clears throat> then you get minor details like, I mean, she she convinced the, the local lord of her 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 honesty and her, her abilities and the rightness of what she was doing. Um, and also, when she was brought to meet the Dauphin, there's a crowded room with a hundred courtiers in there. He was dressed very plainly. He was not dressed like the pretender to the crown of France. He was dressed just as some servant. And she walked straight up to him and said, You shall be crowned king of France, and I shall help you. Hmm. Which, needless to say, blew everybody away. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was just doing a little bit of reading on the actual trial, and... And from what I can, from what I've read, they basically were told, the tribunal was told, you will convict her on yes. something, find something to convict her. Yes. And is, was it because she was still a focus for the... She was the moral authority for the crown. Yeah, okay. The person of the Dauphin was completely non-virtuous. He, okay. he may have had legitimacy, but he had no virtue whatsoever. She did, and and she became the not just the the lightning rod. She became the moral force behind France. She became the epitome of of France. When when this trial was taking place, was the Civil War still going on, or oh, yeah. was everything? It didn't oh. end until the fourteen fifties. Oh, okay, and this is fourteen. 30 something yeah yeah in the 30s okay so this is so so her trial is going basically they've pulled this focus away now and they're going to get rid of her somehow well yes uh, what she did militarily was to have the moral authority to overcome the chivalric demand Mm -hmm. that when you meet an enemy you, you attack him that's how the english had beaten the french over and over and over it was by basically setting up a defensive position with their archers and their knights on foot and suckering the French into attacking them. And that worked time and again at, at uh, Crecy, Poitiers, Agincourt, again and again and again. And what she did was say, no, we don't, we're not going to attack them right now. Um, when she was involved in the, and she led the relief of the city of Orléans, which is extremely important in French history, that line of the Loire River, mm-hmm. if it's crossed, France collapses. Mm. If it holds, France stays. 
And this, I mean, this happened in the last century too, and or in the last couple of centuries, in 1815, 1871, and 1940. Boom. When the enemy troops cross that, France collapses. So the, the Loire Valley is a huge strategic. Absolutely line. huge, and and the, the English were besieging Orleans, and she led this this relief of it, and and it was her enthusiasm, her ability. In fact, her predictions. I mean, there was a. The French were bringing a, a convoy of, of barges down the river to, to feed Orléans. And, the, and it's like, oh, we can't do this. It's not going to work because the winds are wrong. And it's going to give to the, And she predicted that, no, you have a greater gift than merely your military might. You have the gifts from God to make this happen. And totally unseasonably, the winds changed. And so this... This convoy of food was able to get through, and then she led the attacks on the outworks against the English. And then, when the English decided to have a fight in the open field, she said, "No, we're just going to have a procession of thanks to God." And the French knights are like, "We have to go attack them. They're making themselves ready for battle." No, we're not going to do that. She didn't bother mentioning that that's how the English always win. But she, her moral authority could over. And how did it turn that. out? Um, the, the English had to leave because the French refused to give battle. Oh. <laughs> and that's how the French, that's how they beat the English finally. Is they, it was some years later that they, figured, they, they put all the things together. But, but by allowing the English to get into a defensive position and then pounding the heck out of them with their artillery, which did exist then, it was, you know, good old cannons and whatnot and they forced the english into the attack and then they could slaughter them yeah there's actually a one artillery moment in this movie it's when there's the big riot at the end and they're trying to put down the peasants and you get basically cannon cam for a second (laughs) but anyway she she was the moral authority of france and napoleon said morale is to numbers as three is to one so you can have a small army that has the moral high ground and is absolutely convinced of the righteousness of its cause. They can't do stupid stuff, but you can still, with that kind of moral authority, you can beat a much larger army. So I guess there were some rescue attempts, which failed, of course, yeah. sadly. But um, they, they, wanted, well, they wanted her back. Well, but, but also Charles, they? Charles the Dauphin, mm-hmm. um, he wasn't all that interested he really wasn't all that interested in rescuing her because she was more of the moral authority, far more than he was. He was a spoiled aristocrat, and so he didn't like to have to share the limelight with someone. Even though she gave him France, mm-hmm. she gave him his crown. She ensured that he would be crowned. Yeah, he's still, oh, the English have her. Oh, my horrible word. Well, oh, well, oh, that's well, too bad. Too bad. Yeah, I guess she she wasn't canonized until like 1909 or something. Or... Just in time for World War One. Yeah, some, or or <laughs> something. She was vindicated or something, and then she no, she was canonized even later, in like 1920 or something. And this film came out in 28, so I can see the timing on that. Her her image was used as sort of a mascot, not a mascot, but as a symbol for troops in French troops and I believe in World War One. Absolutely, a lot. And she, because she was the you know, the symbol of the soul of France. Basically. Absolutely. Which is funny because at this point they were allied with the English. Yeah. 
And yeah, <laughs> you need something. When the the first, I guess the first cut of this film, you know, first of all, the French were like, oh, German is making a film about our beloved Joan of Arc. How this is appalling. He's not going to do it justice. So when he wanted to show it in France, they had to review it first. And they said, yeah, it's fine, except cut that scene where they refuse her the Eucharist because she won't sign her a confession. And that just makes the Catholic Church look bad or something. Okay, so France kind of makes a lackluster effort to get her back, but not really, and they're happy but to But the thing is, the English the English were hated her because they thought she was a sorceress. Yeah, they, they really apparently did. there was this rumor that she was using black magic to achieve her victories with something to do with her banner or what because that's the only thing they could conceive of yeah but i guess at the trials they disproved that they couldn't get her on witchcraft right they tried to get her on other things there was a lot of really skeevy stuff that went on during that trial in the in the uh film it looks like it happens over like one long day or a couple of days but it was like 28 days worth of trial and i mean some of the stupid things they did under under the law, female prisoners were required to be kept separate from male prisoners and overseen by nuns. And like, no, we're just going to put her in the regular prison and have male guards. And one of the reasons that she wouldn't give up her male clothing uh-huh. was so she couldn't be raped. Yeah. Because she was, not only was she wearing male clothing, but it was under clothing that you wear under armor where everything's laced together including her boots were even laced on and they couldn't get at her if she had put on a dress it would have been all over so that was one of the reasons that she resisted it so oh well that she's just being recalcitrant and 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 in fact there's even uh you know oh in the in the film they talk about how oh it's a sin against god to to dress like a man well whether it was secular law or church law but there was a provision for women wearing male clothing to prevent sexual harassment and to you know in this kind of a situation it's okay to dress like a man if you're doing it to preserve your virtue well in show trials law doesn't really matter anyway yeah. the thing that we forget in this modern very secular age is how religious people were then, extraordinarily so, um, and that that prior to the maid discussing and having her visions and discussing them, preachers had been going throughout the land, preaching, um, you know, rising up against the English, and that God would help them, and then all of a sudden here's this young woman who says, "I have visions from God that we're going to overcome," and that full, completely fulfilled. What all this preaching was, people felt they had individual patron saints helping them. It was a very, very personal, very much, every not just every day, every moment mm-hmm. religion. And we completely forget that because we have, you know, if you want to say it, strayed so far from that. We're yeah. such a different people um, than, I mean, they're not just, people in the past aren't just foreigners speaking a different language, they're very, very different. Their mindsets were completely different from, than ours. Yep, and also magic was considered to be an everyday thing. Sorcery was considered to be very much real. The fact that the French looked upon the maid as mm-hmm. given to her by from God, mm-hmm. and the English looked at the exactly the opposite. She was sent by the devil mm-hmm. to prevent them from their victory. And there it is. And of course, oddly enough, politicians always use both of these things to, you know, in their favor. 
Okay, well, we don't want to go too long. I just thought it would be good to give a historical context for the for the film. So thanks, Gordon, for coming in and doing your thing. You are welcome. Thanks, Nancy, and thank you, Gordon. That was a great history lesson. I myself, and I, I mentioned this later on, I don't know too much about the whole history of the thing. I'm, I'm just looking at the film itself, and it's good now that I can see sort of the bigger picture, if you know what I mean. It's a, very, it's a really remarkable story. Like I say later on, it's, it's almost something you would think was written by a screenwriter. It's almost that unbelievable. I do have one question for Gordon that's really important to what he was talking about, and that's that he mentioned John the Fearless. Did John the Fearless give himself that name? Because that would seem really egotistic if he did. I mean, I couldn't call myself Jeff the Fearless. I would just be laughed at. So I was just curious. Anyway, anyway, back to my review. You cannot know the history of silent film unless you know the face of Rene Marie Falconetti. In a medium without words, where the filmmakers believe that the camera captured the essence of characters through their face, to see Falconetti and Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc is to look into eyes that will never leave you. Roger Ebert, February 16, 1997. You know, this is the only Joan of Arc film I've ever seen or had the desire to see. And it's not only because of Dreyer and Falcone, but because it's also based on the actual court records. Most other films, I'm guessing, have to assume an awful lot. And I know Dreyer's film assumes a lot as well, but at least the words were the real words actually spoken. There is a 1962 film called The Trial of Joan of Arc by Robert Brenson that I think I might want to check out. Brenson apparently didn't like Dreyer's film, expressing his dislike for the actor's grotesque buffoonery. I can understand that, but I'm guessing here that Dreyer was just trying to show the Inquisitors as perhaps Joan would have seen them. And like I said, Falcone's performance as Joan is widely considered one of the best of all time, if not the greatest. And if there is a complaint, I would guess that maybe she doesn't look like a 19-year-old, but hey, the hell with that. She's great. Ben McDonald, senior critic from the Sin Eccentric website, said this of her. It's also amazing to me how she can convey so many distinct emotions on her face, all without the crutch of dialogue. Joan is tormented nearly every moment, but she doesn't wear one suffering expression the whole time. Balcone's face can range from pained agony to elevated spirituality to panicked fear. It's especially those last two emotions that I think really sell her performance. Falcone does this thing with her face, where she opens up her eyes as wide as possible, looks to the heaven, and then says something profound that gives her character a sort of divine presence. You know, one thing I really appreciated in this film was the intertitles, the printed text on the screen. They are used very sparingly, which is wonderful. Some silent films, I think, rely on them too much. In this film, there are many times when Joan and her accusers go back and forth, and we as the audience, well, we can figure out what's going on. But if there's one word, I think, to describe this film, it would have to be cold. It's just so stark and white with the plain walls and everything. It's, and that with the extreme close-ups and the disoriented angles make for such a unique experience. 
But what I love about this film is the way Joan had the intelligence to turn the questions that were obviously a trap by her accusers back on them. And you can see it in her face, just a slight change of expression. It looks almost as if she's saying, you're not going to trap me. I know how to play this game. For example, she asked if she was in God's grace. Now that question's a trap, since according to church doctrine, nobody could be certain of being in God's grace. So if she answered yes, she could have been charged with heresy. If she answered no, it would have been a confession of her own guilt. So she answers that if she is not in God's grace, she hoped God would put her there. And if she were in God's grace, then she hoped she would remain so. Very smart for an illiterate farm peasant, wouldn't you say? And one might be attempted to accuse the filmmakers of clever screenwriting, but remember, this is taken from the actual transcripts of the trial. This is what she said. I'm also fascinated by the attention given to her wearing men's clothes. When she asks them to hear Mass, her accusers say, If we let you hear Mass, will you lay aside your men's clothes? And she gives this look like, to me it meant, Really? That's what you're worried about? This hundred year war and all that's gone on and you're worried about the clothes I'm wearing? I could say something about the church here, but I'm going to refrain. One of my favorite scenes is when she turns the tables on the old men, saying, You claim that I am sent by the devil. It's not true. You make me suffer. The devil has sent you, and you, and you, and you. Of course, the whole trial of Joan was a no-win situation. It was politically motivated in an attempt to make England happy by a pro-English bishop, Pierre Cochin, by charging her with heresy. This is pointed out in a scene where she is asked if God made promises to her. She responds by saying that she doesn't think that has anything to do with the trial. The judge takes a vote, and everyone raises their hand in agreement except one young man in the back. The judge gives him a dirty look of disapproval, and he slowly sits down, raising his hand. And I will say the burning scene at the end is a bit hard for me to watch, but... Uh, Hey, I'm a sensitive guy, what can I say? But I really love this film. But I want to see if everyone agrees. On Rotten Tomatoes, it gets a 93%, which is pretty good. Sayer F. gave it 5 out of 5 stars, and he or she wrote, An emotionally charging and complete masterpiece. The Passion of Joan of Arc explores relevant themes throughout time with amazing performances that make not only a staple of silent film, but film itself. J. Scott F. gave it five stars, and he wrote, This is silent film at its apex. The cinematography, acting, and editing create an intense masterpiece of passion, raw emotion, and spiritual dynamism. The soundtrack also adds a brilliant and passionate touch. But not everyone agrees, of course. Thomas M. gave it a half star, and he wrote, Joan's wide-eyed stare off into space gets repetitive real quick. Sure, Tom. And James H. wrote, This has to be one of the most overrated movies in history. Critics back in 1927 thought it was awful, and they were right. A courtroom drama with no dialogue? A Joan of Arc who does nothing but cry and stare moon-faced at the ceiling instead of fighting tooth and nail for her life? The way she actually did. 
Ham acting and direction do not make a great movie, silent or not. Pretty strong there, James. And did Joan fight tooth and nail for her life? Personally, I've never researched it, but I know this film is based on the actual transcripts from the trial, so that says something. And she does fight back in the way she answers the questions. And as for critics back in 1927 thinking it was awful, well, James, it is true that Variety gave this a negative review on its initial release, calling it a deadly, tiresome picture. But in 1929, a New York Times film reviewer, Mordent Hall, raved, As a film work of art, this takes precedence over anything that has so far been produced. It makes worthy pictures of the past look like tinsel shams. It fills one with such intense admiration that other pictures appear but trivial in comparison. In fact, while it did fail in its initial release with the public, it was considered a critical success, and many immediately called it a masterpiece. So, James H., I don't know quite where you get your information. But that being said, I can see where people might be put off by this film. I mean, nothing blows up, there's no chase scenes, and she isn't rescued at the end. It's just a simple film exploring what it might have been like for a young woman to go through such hell as Joan did. It's haunting and sad, but to many I can see where they would think it's slow and repetitive, especially these days. And if I can go on a bit of a rant here, I also roll my eyes when I hear people say things like overrated. Hey, nothing is overrated. I think people who use terms like overrated think that somehow the masses only like it because they're supposed to like it. Like we're really afraid to say it's a bad film. To them, it's all an emperor wearing no clothes thing, you know? One thing I found interesting going through all the reviews is that many commented on the music, saying how great it was. Now, you can find many different versions of this film, of course, and most do have a musical score. I watched a Criterion version that used Richard Einhorn's Voice of Light. But when Dreyer first showed it, he showed it without sound, completely silent. So if you're a hardcore film buff, you may want to watch this with the sound down. There aren't too many parental warnings on IMDb, of course. We are warned that a baby is showing nursing, and we see the mother's breast. And of course, the burning of Joan was under violence and gore, and it is a pretty intense scene. As far as Falconetti, she continued with her career as a producer of light stage comedies. During World War II, she escaped from France to Switzerland, Brazil, and then left for Argentina. Sadly, she suffered with mental illness much of her life, and in 1946, she died apparently from suicide by a self-imposed restrictive diet after she had become significantly overweight. Dreyer died in 1968 as he was getting ready to make a film about Jesus. In fact, he made only five films after The Passion of Joan of Arc, one of them being the highly successful Vampire. If you've never seen The Passion of Joan of Arc, it's available on HBO's streaming service, and I think you can find a version on YouTube, but I think the version on YouTube isn't in English, not even subtitled. It probably is on archive.org, but I haven't looked. But do yourself a favor. Check it out. A girl with a magical crystal. The way you fell from the sky, I 
thought maybe you were an angel or something. Thank you for saving me. A boy with an irresistible dream. Beyond that cloud is a floating city that no one here on Earth believes exists. An island that floats in the sky? Yep. Together, they found the courage. Are you sure you want to do this? I swear! I am going to be the one to prove it. To take off on an unforgettable adventure. There it is! Look! Ah! Wow! <gasps> Patsu, look there! <gasps> Coming soon, only to video. A little bit before I go... I thought I'd talk about the real Joan and following up on the conversation by Nancy and Gordon. First of all, we all know today what happened to her was a travesty. But looking into it, that wasn't something that took centuries to realize. Almost as soon as she was put to death, her fame began to increase. It was less than 20 years after her death that Charles VII of France ordered an inquest, and it was determined that she had been a prisoner of war, treated as a political prisoner, and was put to death without basis. You think? A new trial was ordered, and her mother and brothers were there for that one, and eventually it was ruled that the original trial was unjust and deceitful. Her name was cleared. Of course, that didn't change the fact that a teenager was burned alive. Hey, next week, the third Monday of the month, we're going to talk about the 1986 film Cabin in the Sky, which is a Japanese animated fantasy adventure film written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Nancy recommended this one, and I've never seen it, so I think we'll do it. Of course, this might cause a problem with me trying to pronounce some Japanese names, but I'll do my best. Hey, listen up. We have a Facebook page. We'd love to read your comments on it. It's called Celluloid Days. Why don't you join us? It's a great place to leave recommendations of films we should watch. We also have a Twitter account. It's at Celluloid underscore Days. Hey, I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. The email address for the show is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid all being one word. Feel free to email me for any reason. You can email me just to say hi if you'd like. And if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Nancy and Gordon for the history lesson. There was a lot I didn't know there. Take care. I'll be back next Monday. So long. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Multipass. You know it's multipass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time.